Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. As I wrote recently, Trump may be a buffoon, but the forces behind him are serious. Trump may be gone, at least for now, but many developments are driving a section of the American elites towards a more overtly coercive and racist state. This section of the elite has been ascendant because, quote, liberal American capitalism is out of solutions. Had it not been for the pandemic, Trump would likely be headed back to the White House. In spite of his criminal mishandling of the pandemic, he still received 70 million votes. Obama's economic policies favored Wall Street and produced greater income inequality. Desperation and frustration created conditions for strengthening fascist and racist ideas in segments of the working class and rural poor. It tilled the soil for Trump. People, especially in rural America, have lost faith in traditional post-war American institutions, and evangelical and conservative religions are gaining strength. At least 60% of the Trump vote came from very religious people. These people have lost their ideological moorings, as have people in most of the country. And demagogues from the right, from Trump to Tucker Carlson, are staking out the anti-elitist position. I think if progressives don't learn how to talk to people of religious faith, they can't win this battle. The oligarchy is aghast at the success of the Sanders campaign and the wave of progressives elected to office. They fear increasing public support for socialized solutions like Medicare for All, publicly owned banks, community control of police, and a growing consciousness that some form of socialism is a viable alternative. If Biden continues Clinton-Obama-era pro-banker economic policies, he will set the table for a more dangerous version of Trump in 2024, or maybe Trump himself all over again. The climate crisis makes all this even more urgent. We don't have time for compromise and reach across the aisle solutions. I said vote for Biden without illusions because it would be a better field of battle for progressive forces. Well, the next phase of the battle has begun. Now joining us is Matt Taibbi. Matt's an award-winning investigative reporter, the son of a television reporter and a lawyer, Taibbi grew up admiring Russian writers, which led him to spend most of his early adult life in the former Soviet Union. Taibbi returned to the U.S. in 2002 and soon began work as a contributing editor for Rolling Stone. At Rolling Stone, Taibbi won the National Magazine Award for Commentary, and he's best known for his coverage of four presidential election campaigns and the 2008 financial crisis and the criminal justice system. He's written eight books, including four New York Times bestsellers, The Great Derangement, Griftopia, The Divide and Insane Clown President. His book, I Can't Breathe About the Police Killing of Eric Garner, was named one of the year's 10 best books by The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So uh, I want to dig into the article you wrote recently about, you know, just which party is going to be, at least call itself the working class party. I, I, I don't think the Democratic Party ever was actually the working class party, but a lot of people thought it was. But just uh, where, where are you today? Biden's now is essentially going to be president. He's had his uh, speech where he's announced that Trump hasn't given up, but even much of the Republican Party seems to be bailing on him here. So just as of today, where, where, how are you feeling about this? And then we'll kind of dig more into your article. I, th I think this is a dangerous moment for the Democrats because I think it, they're going to take um, Biden's victory as a validation of all of their strategy for the last uh, two election cycles. Um, whereas, in fact, you know, it's really been disastrous. They, they lost to Trump in 2016 kind of inexplicably, and they nearly lost to him this time. And they suffered losses in the House, but they and they didn't win the Senate. Um you know, the, the, the Democrats have become essentially an upper class cosmopolitan party. Uh, people outside the cities just don't vote Democratic. Uh, it's a party of people who uh, are college educated and have professional jobs. Um, 
people who are more working class and rural, uh, even though they don't, they may not have the class sensibility, they tend to uh, much more, they're much more likely to fall into the Trump camp. Uh, so I, I think it's a starkly divided uh, electorate where you can almost tell um, who's going to vote for which candidate based on where you are in the country uh, and, you know, what that person's background is uh, at this point. Um, and that I think that's a troubling it's a troubling sign for the Democrats because I, I think they don't realize it, but I think they've lost working class people. Well, they certainly lost rural working class people. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. I think the urban working class, I think, still votes for the Democrats. Although I, I would say in this election, the urban working class voted against Trump. I'm not so much they, I don't know how much they voted for Biden. Um, right. The, but even there, there was some slippage. That's the thing that's ominous for the Democrats. Yeah, they're in this precarious position, corporate Democrats. Uh, I think both parties depend on finance and and activist billionaires. Uh, so much of the Trump vote is religious that he doesn't have to actually deliver on the economic promises. He just has to deliver on the core religious value promises, and then they forgive him for not delivering on the economic stuff, where the urban workers actually want something, and they're getting disillusioned. So, in fact, much more of the urban populations turn to Sanders in the primary. And the corporate Democrats are, in some ways, between a rock and a hard place, like piss off finance, Sanders gains in strength. Trumpist forces gain in strength. But they don't have a choice other than rely on finance because that's who they are. Right. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the strategy that was open to them was to uh, embrace some version of whatever Bernie Sanders was doing. Um, and if they had done that, and if they had done that using all of the um, the PR skill that they they've shown over the years and in, in marketing people like Barack Obama. Um, I think they would have won in a walk, you know, if they had some kind of a message that was actually designed for, you know, kind of the employee class uh, of voter. Uh, but they didn't do that. They went in the other direction and they, they kind of actively suppressed um, both Sanders and the kind of facsimile of Sanders as uh, so Elizabeth Warren who I think ran as kind of a bridge between the two uh, types of Democrat. And so they, they ended up having to basically run on the same platform that they ran on in, in 2016. And they got over the line basically because of the pandemic. You know, I mean, I, I think <laughs> they didn't win for any reason. Uh, they did have a good turnout uh, effort and their, their, you know, the, the, the logistical accomplishment was significant, but politically they didn't do, they didn't make any changes. Uh, so, um, yeah, they, they, they navigated, uh, a thoroughfare between Sanders and, and Trump successfully to get to the other side. And, and I guess they're probably happy with that, but I think it's bad. It portends poorly for their future. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. But they had a problem with Warren, who was the obvious bridge candidate, as you're saying. And as much as the Sanders crowd um, got angry at Warren for not backing Sanders, they would have come around to Warren and, and more enthusiastically than, than they eventually did with Biden. But I, I talked to some people that know the Wall Street people pretty well, and I know you've covered that beat a lot. And uh, the wealth tax was just a killer. Uh, as long as the, I was, I actually sat, the t- uh, Tom Ferguson, who does a lot of money and politics research, and I asked him once, uh, would finance rather go with a kind of fascism that Trump's heading towards? Or would they deal put up with a Warren? And his answer was, as long as the wealth tax is on the table, <laughs> they'll go with fascism. Uh, and maybe it's actually was a tactical mistake of hers. Uh, maybe the wealth tax is it's just not the time to do that, given how strong the right wing forces are. Yeah, but you 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 have to uh, run with some kind of plan like that. Otherwise, it, it doesn't have any legitimacy as a as a working uh, party platform. 
And I, and I think what, what you're describing with the reaction when people are asked, would they prefer Warren or, or Trump? Most of the people I talk to on Wall Street, they see Trump as basically a, a clown uh, who is incapable of implementing any kind of real political strategy, um, except for the things that maybe uh, the Beltway insiders already want, like these ma- like the massive uh, tax giveaway uh, that, that he gave uh, in 2017-18. So I, I think it's obvious that they would have preferred Trump over over Warren because they they don't they didn't see Trump as a terribly dangerous figure and and he gave them everything they wanted in the pandemic bailout uh, and in his tax policy and at military spending um, and yeah Warren Warren's wealth tax was a problem because it, there was no way to loophole your way out of it that was the whole point of of the program of the uh, the proposal was that. Uh, you know, it, it was designed to make sure that companies just paid taxes on what they actually earned, as opposed to what they reported uh, or where they reported it. And um, yeah, maybe that was a mistake tactically, but you know, what what are you going to do? I mean, you, no, you, I'm you, not you, talking you, about. Yeah. I'm not talking about the corporate tax increase. I'm talking about a tax on individuals. Oh wealth. yeah, what, what, what? Yes, right. But it, it was, what, it was I, the same concept. Is, yeah, mm-hmm. but but. I mean, it's another conversation in some ways. I thought she should have pushed the estate tax because that's something, it's it's a more acceptable way to get out of a wealth tax than a straight wealth tax. Um, I think sometimes, I think sometimes many of us uh, forget that we're living in the heart of the empire. You got to be realistic about what's possible here. The the forces of the right, the forces of uh, the, the the extent of the strength of financialization, the power of finance, including being able to just throw, make up money from the Fed and throw it at a problem when you need to. Um, it, 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 it's, it's, I guess to put it another way, the people's movement just isn't strong enough right now to deal, especially with the, the threat of climate with such a narrow window. There's, there's got to be some maneuvering here or, or the, there's not going to be any kind of legislation passed on climate that's going to be effective. Not that I have any great faith in Biden, quite the opposite. Yeah, I, I, the only thing I would say is that if, if the Democratic Party actually decided they wanted to be that kind of party and threw all their institutional weight behind um, trying to make that happen, then then I think they would have had a decent chance of getting something done because they would they would have had all the votes, not all the votes, they would have had so much popular support or so much more than they have now um, that it would have been possible. What's the, the problem that we have right now is that the country is essentially divided into three groups. We have the kind of Trump coalition, which is sort of a right populist, you know, evangelical group. And there's a massive, massive section of people who are just disinterested, don't vote, uh, and disillusioned. And then there's a, a group of people who vote Democratic, who I think are increasingly belong to um, a, a disaffected uh, and uh, undermanned professional class. There just aren't enough of those people, uh, ultimately, to become a permanent majority uh, in the United States. So unless they find a way to dig into that group of people who have stopped voting, um, you know, they're, they're always going to be kind of behind the eight ball electorally, I think. Yeah. And they're not going to get handed a pandemic every time. Right. There's no reason ideologically, politically, there's no reason Trump couldn't have actually dealt with the pandemic. It wouldn't have hurt him in any way with his base. He could have said, wear masks. Nobody would have cared. I right. Mean, it was, it was, he's a lunatic. Right. If, and, if he, and a he, lunatic he, just got 70 million votes. If he were, if he were just slightly less insane, he would have, he would have won the election. Yeah. And probably going away, he would have won it. You know, like if he had, if he had handled things, you know, with the sophistication of like a 13 year old, um, he would have been fine. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's a real scary proposition because every other part of his presidency was also a disaster, starting with climate first and foremost, Iran, 
and go on department by department by department, unraveling every kind of social safety net and, and issues of carbon emission and so on and so on, a complete disaster. And I think you're right. He would have won the election. I mean, I, I, we, we, we once interviewed this guy in a diner outside of Baltimore, a uh, white guy in a white area uh, in one of the suburbs. And he said, I th- he says, I think Trump is insane. I think he's a liar. I think he's a con man. And I voted for him anyway. Mm-hmm. What does that tell you about what I think of the other guys? Mm-hmm. And But uh, anyway, do you see any hope that the Biden... Here's here's my Hail Mary about Biden, my naivete Hail Mary, that he doesn't have to worry about running again. He doesn't have to worry about a post-presidency career. Um, he's old enough that he, he could break his own mold. Um, you think there's any chance he'll listen to the progressives? And I guess we're going to find out pretty soon about who he appoints. Oh, there's no way that he goes that way. Um, Biden is a... He's a creature of the Beltway. He always has been. His personal leanings, I think, politically, are probably more, far more conservative than he lets on. Um, he has a persona that has been uh, carefully crafted over the years that accentuate this idea that he's a, you know, a, a, from the working class, that he's Scranton Joe, and and he, you know, he has that hard scrabble background but really if you go back and look at what he actually believes in um the things that he seems to feel most strongly about are things like very draconian criminal justice plans um you know free trade uh and he was you know uh, by barack obama's side through you know the, the very aggressive a kind of democracy promotion foreign policy that uh, that Obama uh, promoted all those years with drone assassination and um, all of that stuff. So I, I don't I don't have any faith that they're going to do that. Plus, there's already all these trial balloon stories in the, in the American press talking about how Biden, um, you know, has to resist the Warren Sanders wing call for appointments in, you know, in treasury and places like that, which to me suggests that, you know, they're already gearing people up for the idea that there are going to be a whole bunch of sort of Jamie Dimon types um, in government. Maybe it won't be exactly Jamie Dimon, but it'll be people like that. Every rational part of my brain says you're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess I'm just working backwards from climate catastrophe and and hoping uh, that some rationality will, because if you look at his current climate plan, like we went, I I interviewed Bob Polin, the economist, we went through his climate plan that's on his website and phasing out fossil fuel actually isn't really part of what he says is the climate plan. I know he kind of got off message and said that at the uh, last debate and then you know, backed out of it saying it would take decades, but it's all based on carbon capture, his real plan, which is a totally unproven technology. Uh, On the other hand, there does at least seem to be some recognition of how serious the climate crisis is in Biden and, and, and even some of those circles in finance. Um, Chuck Schumer said something uh, interesting, the morning of November 3rd, it didn't get much coverage because uh, it got lost in how well, uh, at, the, at the time on November 3rd, how well Trump was doing and everybody went into shock. But the morning of the 3rd, when the Democrats were assuming it was going to be a cakewalk, uh, Schumer says, we're going we're gonna to do what FDR did in his first 100 days. We're going to be as progressive as FDR, something like that, coming from Schumer. And I think what it means is that they think they can have a massive infrastructure program, label it as green, and it becomes a tremendous cash cow because it's not just about how much money you spend. It's what do you spend it on and who reaps the benefit of all that spending. And maybe that's part of what the stock markets are so happy about right now because even the Republicans, if finance really likes the package, then all they need is a few Republicans in the Senate to come on board with it. 
maybe that is, you know, that's going to look FDR-ish, but it will actually do anything effective will be the will be the fight. Now, at least there's a fight about what's effective under Trump. You don't even have that discussion. Uh, it's possible. I, I just I'm very, very um, uh, skeptical that that would be the reality, given given that they spent the entire 2019, 2020 uh, electoral season uh, pouring every ounce of political capital they had into suppressing a, a candidate who had basically exactly FDR's politics uh, in Bernie Sanders. I mean, who, who a, a person who literally campaigned on returning to the New Deal uh, and they threw everything they had into making sure that... Um, that there wouldn't be any kind of return to the new deal. Uh, Ber- Bernie Sanders ran on that explicitly and they, they expended every ounce of political capital they had in crushing him. Um, I don't think that this party believes in that kind of politics. I think they are a, uh, you know, it's the Clintonian model of, of, um, of politics, which is very much in sync with Wall Street. So maybe there's something like what you're saying, where it's a a financialized kind of Green New Deal. Yeah. Maybe something like that, where there's a, you know, a ton of Fed spending for a handful of companies that are creating a basket of securities that you invest into that would ostensibly would address the problem, but I am extremely skeptical that they care at all about the end result. Um, So, you know, (laughs) I apologize for being a downer, but that, that I've never seen any evidence that this, that that this party cares about that. Well, the party is complicated because they, they've got an urban base that does want action on climate and they are fairly educated. Oh, I don't don't mean the people. I mean the... No, no, but I mean they have to worry about that. Uh, The Republican base doesn't care very much about... But the Democratic Party as a party, if they want to win another election, and if they don't want to strengthen the Sanders wing, they they can't do nothing. Um, So just from pure electoral self-interest, they have different interests that will drive them in that direction. Uh, finance, I think, sees an opportunity here, um, and and not only an opportunity. Uh, you know, I, I I interview Larry Wilkerson a lot, and he's in touch with a lot of fossil fuel people, and and they know uh, that this is coming. That I mean, they don't have any doubt that the climate science is for real. Uh, they just want twenty twenty five years to get more fossil fuel out of the ground before anything serious happens. Right. Um, uh, but. Even this guy, Larry Fink, who runs BlackRock, he's been paying a lot of lip service to the issue of getting off coal and some climate stuff. I mean, what he proposes is not serious, but there's a recognition in the people that are putting money into the BlackRock investment fund that there's some serious stuff coming down that might even threaten their assets. Um, So, uh, but there's nothing that will get done that they won't f- try to find a way to make money out of. And that's going to be more important to them than what's the most effective policy. I, I just want to just add to Bernie Sanders. I mean, the threat of Bernie Sanders, I think the biggest threat wasn't any of his policy proposals because there wasn't a policy proposal of Bernie that doesn't already exist in Europe and Canada and places like that. It, they're not capitalist threatening proposals. I think the biggest threat of Sanders is that he wasn't in the control of Wall Street. He found a way to raise money. Yeah, exactly. Without without finance, and that that they can't live with. Yeah, and that and Bernie, uh, I mean, it was one of the most underreported stories of the last election cycle. Was Sanders was the leading fundraiser? Um, you know, by January of 2020, he was out raising everybody in the party by. A, a pretty significant margin. Uh, none of that money was big corporate money. So there was a big proof of concept there, which, and I think you're right, that that's what made Sanders uniquely dangerous to the Democratic Party because it threatens what their business model is. Um, remember, this is they're essentially a commercial organization. And if they allow somebody like Bernie to become the nominee, they would be... Uh, 
eliminating thousands of cushy sinecures for all the people who've been working for the party for years in Washington. And they'd have to bring in a whole new group of people who don't believe in what they believe in, which is taking corporate money and pretending to be socially progressive. That's what they do. Uh, and, you know, Bernie, Bernie proved that you can, you can be a competitive politician without the money. And that's when I think they, that, that's when the, they became particularly hostile to him was it, it, it uh, precisely at that moment when he uh, when he started to pull ahead um, and he was he was raising all the money. Yeah, I agree that the, these parties and the whole political structure was not didn't have the internet in mind and internet fundraising in mind when it was created. It's it's really threatened the uh, who oh, controls the politics. And and just as a parenthetical, I mean, I remember I I, I covered Howard Dean when he first ran for president and Dean actually did something very similar. He started, he, he had an early fundraising lead in 2004 all through internet generated small contributions. And that's when all the think tanks, the big news media organizations, that's when they all turned on him. And it wasn't because he was a big bomb throwing liberal. I mean, although he was anti-war, um, it was that was the reason that was what engendered all the hostility was the financial independence. Yeah, because this, you know, quote unquote, democracy. Right. Has some built in controls. One is the Electoral College. The other is the Senate. And most importantly, is who controls the money. If you break the money control, all of a sudden it actually might start looking democratic. And, and it wasn't designed for that. Right. And then there's the media after that, which. Yeah, let's you know, talk about that. Yeah. What the, what the hell is going to be the new business model for CNN and MSNBC? I mean, the whole business model was anti-Trump. I mean, the, I mean I've written so much about this in the last four years. The, these companies have transformed themselves into – they're so far from what the traditional conception of a news organization is um, that it's, they're basically unrecognizable at this point. Uh, and, you know, they, they, they created a, a programming slate that was really based around the character of Donald Trump, um, without him as a constant to react to, uh, I have no idea what they're going to do because the rest of their programming is, is virtually indistinguishable from the stuff you would read on the democratic national committee website, for instance, uh, in the press press releases section, they they there is no other independent thought that goes on in most of these news organizations. So uh, it, it's it's been amazing to watch. I, I have no idea what they're going to do, and I think they 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 almost have to hope that Trump has like this big domestic presence somewhere, like through uh, maybe a news network or something like that. Well, he probably is. He's already started his fight with Fox. So and right. they would and they with him with Fox calling Arizona before anyone else did. Right. And actually, I watched I, I've been watching Fox more than MSNBC and me too. And CNN, because I know what they're going to say. At least you get the odd surprise on Fox. And, uh, was, and there was a, a go ahead. Yeah. Wasn't that amazing? There was stuff on Fox during the election they had people on saying who were, who were supposed to be like the experts in like the Latino vote who were saying things like, yeah, he won a lot of Cuban voters, but, you know, he really let down Puerto Ricans and that's why he didn't do well. Or, or you had Mike Huckabee on saying things like there's a time to be a candidate and a time to be president and the time to be candidate is over. And, he, and Trump has to recognize this and he has to stop talking about, you know, not counting votes anymore and that sort of thing. Um, Fox looked more like the heterodox challenging news network for a moment there than the traditional, you know, CNN and uh, MSNBC uh, channels, which, you know, are, are basically, you know, blue propaganda at this point. So it, it, it was, it was amazing to watch. Yeah. I mean, the, maybe it's partly the influence of Chris Wallace, who is also as an interviewer, I find far more interesting than anyone else on Sunday mornings. He absolutely gives, gives his uh, subjects a hard time. He is actually actually acts like a journalist. Which mm -hmm. I, I agree with that. I, but I think it's partly a positioning. Fox knows that there's a Trump media empire competition coming with Fox. So 
they're getting ready to trash him. Uh, but the and also it was the news side of Fox that was more reasonable. The the pundits weren't around that much uh, the night of November third. No, but at least there is a news side. See that that's what's so interesting. I mean, on the the, the... well, they're normally the news side's been awful, but. Now, all of a sudden, you actually, I agree with that. They sounded like news all of a sudden. Right, right. Whereas on, uh, you know, uh, the other axis, the CNN, MSNBC, Washington Post, New York Times axis has been kind of moving in a, in a direction where the the news is it's just increasingly politicized. And it's um, it, it, it's been an amazing transformation. And I don't know, I don't know what they're going to do in terms of uh, going forward now that the, you know, the great dragon has been slayed. One of the things that surprised me about this vote, which shows my, uh, that I bought into, I don't know, polling or whatever it was. I always thought that Hillary could have and should have won that election. And she didn't because she didn't campaign in the swing states. Well, now it turns out that Biden, who did campaign in the key swing states, and yeah, he won, but what in Michigan by what, 140,000 votes? I mean, after a president, after four years of Trump, it, sh- it shouldn't have been, a, it shouldn't have been close. Not, 140,000 votes is still close. So this the 70 million votes that Trump gets, it's a real solid base. And I think what the corporate Dems either don't care or don't know what to do, they actually don't know how to get to communicate. I'm not talking messaging here. That's another issue. They actually don't have a distribution channel to get to those 70 million people because those 70 million people don't watch CNN, MSNBC. They don't read the Post. They don't read the Times. They either watch Fox, and even Fox is overrated. Tucker Carlson does an average of, I think it's 4.4 million, which is great for cable. It's not even close to network news. Network news does 20 million, 22 million. Each one of them does up in those numbers. So it's not just Fox. I think it's the it's it's radio, and it's the pulpit. They're not getting that they have no way to talk to those people and and they seem to make no effort to talk to those people yeah and uh, this is another thing i've written a lot about i've talked a lot about this with people like tom frank uh the author um, yeah i just had him on he was just on i have a piece with him oh on, really okay on the, yeah on the now i yet yeah i i, I it's the fact the top story on the website right now is is whatever happened to america with tom frank yeah there you go. So he and I have talked a lot about this because, um, the, again, the, there has been this transformation in the news media where the the voice of the working person, which used to be like a uh, an, an integral part of uh, the news experience, there was always one columnist or a couple of columnists like Jimmy Breslin, Mike Barnacle, uh, didn't matter who, every city had that person who was supposed to, whose job it was to speak in the vernacular of the working person and to make sure that the news organizations maintain some kind of connection to regular people. And those people have been eliminated over the years. And what's been fascinating is to watch how they've been eliminated. Like first they, they got rid of the sort of genuinely working class people and replaced them, frankly, with people like Tom Frank and myself who were, who were, um, you know, sort of upper class intellectuals, but who were sympathetic, you know, to the kind of the ordinary person. Then they got just, they got rid of us. And yeah, they got rid of both of you. You both right. of you don't get on anymore. Yeah, exactly. And, and, or anybody like us. Uh, and we've all been replaced by these kind of uh, apostles of the professional class whose job it is, is to constantly exalt the uh, bottomless wisdom of, you know, the experts in, in America. And so they don't, the, the problem with the news media now is that they don't have, they, they don't have any people who even have a thought about how to communicate with, with ordinary folks. And that's why they keep missing things like the 2016 election and now the 2020 election, 
because they don't know anybody who who legit. Well, well actually, actually, they kind of do. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, it's the leaders of of fairly conservative unions, and that's who tells them what the working class wants to hear. But if they bothered getting to know people in the unions, they would know that most of the members of the union can't stand them. Right. They don't like these union leaders, and not because they're progressive, but because they're hacks. Right, exactly. And, and, and such, it's like I go into grocery stores that are unionized, mm-hmm. or other, and I say, "Do you know who your steward is?" Uh, no. Do you know the name of your union? Uh, I think it's the something union of something something. Like, there's just no communication between the union leaders who 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 go for these five hundred dollar lunches and eat steaks like. Right. You know, At the monocle. Thick every yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's who's interpreting the working class for the leaders of the Democratic Party. Right. That's exactly right. That that that's how they keep their finger on the pulse of the people. <laughs> right. Uh, it's that it's polls. You know, oh, you know, it's it, I remember hearing a story during the Clinton, the uh, Obama presidency um, from somebody in Treasury who said that they had a presentation from a bunch of high-ranking executives of um, uh, sort of big retail companies like Target and Walmart. And they told them, this was in 2009, you know, there's a lot of pain out there because of the financial crisis. People aren't going to buy that much this this holiday season. And the people at Treasury were like, oh, really? Like, that's how they found out, in, uh, like, that people aren't, that were having a hard time after the, the 2008 crash <laughs> was from a presentation, you know, by a bunch, by these, you know, rapacious uh, retail companies. So, yeah, they, they don't have any of that connection. And I, I wrote about this sort of as a joke. But if you look at the media uh, treatments of this race, there were so many think pieces about who Homer Simpson was going to vote for. Um, and the reason for that is because Homer Simpson is the only potential Trump voter that most journalists even know, you know, uh, <laughs> and it's 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 so embarrassing on so many levels. But it's a serious problem. It's a, it's a very serious problem. Be- uh, the, the other thing they know, but they I, I don't get how they can't get their head around what to do about it, even from the even when they're so close to finance and everything else. But anyway, they know and they've been told at least since 2004, 2005, how the Koch brothers and other billionaires allied with them have consciously, methodically, systematically created this alliance of far right think tanks promoting hack con man, evangelical religious leaders. The ordinary people are not disingenuous. Most of the, most evangelicals, I think, are quite sincere in what they believe. But the leaders are hacks. And, and every so often, there's a sexual expose. There's this corruption scandal. It just doesn't matter because the narrative, they get forgiven. They have it's. I, I did a film once on professional wrestling, and it taught me a lot about this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this idea of, of of heroes that are called faces turning yep. into heels, and then right. heels turning back to faces. That catharsis is is very meaningful for people because they go through that catharsis with the character they're uh, viewing and identifying with. Yep. So 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 this great network's been created. Of, of millions and millions, at least 60%, I think, of the Trump vote is this very religious vote. It may be as high as 70%. But these people believe in these values with a great deal of sincerity, even if there's a dose of white privilege or white supremacy thrown in there in the mix. But a, a chunk of those people voted for Obama. I mean, a that's, big chunk, I mean, yeah. really A big chunk. That's really significant. They voted for a black guy for president. So while I, I'm not discounting the racist part of this narrative. It's certainly not the whole narrative when so many of these people did vote for the first black president. But when you talk directly and I, you know, I've talked to a lot of Trump voters and I've talked to a lot of religious Trump voters and you start talking about, well, how does Trump jive with the message of Jesus? You know, how does Trump, you know, walk through the eye of a needle, you know, camel, they have as much chance of getting into heaven as a camel does walking through the eye of a needle. When you start quoting the Bible and Jesus, and they realize you'll, you'll have a sincere conversation with them about that. 
nobody's jumped and say, oh, I've seen the light because I talked to you. No, but it does shake the uh, shake. It shakes them a bit. And, and, and they don't, there's been so little effort. Just to add one more thing. The progressive candidates, they don't just buy some TV advertising. They're going door to door in between elections. You know, they're talking to people over and over. The corp Dems don't seem to do that. They just think you wait till the election, then you buy a bunch of TV advertising and that's supposed to win you something. Yeah. I, I talked to Marianne Williamson about this a little bit. Um, the inability of the Democratic candidates, not even the inability, the unwillingness of, of the Democratic Party to find a way to talk believably about spirituality, um, it's endemic to part of their to their problem because they 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 don't have any real belief in it. They don't have any connection to it. They don't have anybody who knows how to how to talk that way. And they, ha- they haven't since, I would say, Bill Clinton. Um, and the the modern ethos of a lot of kind of progressive slash liberal thinking um is is completely hostile to uh spirituality and doesn't know how to uh talk about it in any way that's meaningful and the reason that trump gets those votes is because he doesn't condescend to those people you know like he he talks to them as if they're not idiots um, which they probably aren't compared to him, right? But that's that's not really the issue. Like with when Democrats try to talk to, um, you know, evangelicals, there's always this kind of um, condescending, like uh, we're going to start talking a little bit more slowly. Like we 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 feel sorry for you, but let, let me tell you where your real interests are. Um, and they completely discount anything that they think where they might have very serious beliefs, whether it's on reproductive choice or anything else. They just assume that they're completely wrong and, and they don't want to engage in any of those things. Um, so that's a big problem. And, and I would, I would also add, there's a, there's an issue that's starting to arise with uh, kind of progressivism where the the lack of a, a religious tradition, even among parents, um, has created a, a kind of a new kind of democratic voter who has is starting to embrace politics as almost like a replacement for uh, their spiritual beliefs. And they they are talking about th- things like, you know, whether it's um, you know, Black Lives Matter or uh, environmentalism, but they they sometimes start to sound like religious people when they when they speak, which I think speaks to something that's going on uh, that is a little it's a little strange on the on the Democratic side. But but you're the, ultimately the point remains that they just don't have a way to talk to religious people, which I think is you know consistent with what what you've been saying. I think what you just said is really important. And maybe that's part of how we can talk to religious people is that we acknowledge that, you know, pretty well all politics is identity politics. You know, I know a lot of progressives, including me, until maybe, well, maybe it took me living in Baltimore for for a few years to get past this, but, you know, would look down on identity politics. And, and, you know, the, that it's got to be about class and so on. There's a, but there's a reason people want identity politics. It's because they feel their identity is under threat. If their identity wasn't threatened, they wouldn't go there. So, yeah, I personally believe the resolution of the threat to people's identity is a more socially just, equal society and so on. And let me go further than that. Change which class has power, really. That ain't going to happen fast. But when you start arguing religion and politics, and it's not like it's that different, as you say, not just for religious people, for supposedly secular people too, you are fighting with people's identity, not opinions. You're not, you're not just, you know, it's not one scientist who's doing this test and another that, and let's argue about what the results are. We're talking the core of people's identity. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. And if you don't respect that, you can't talk. So you got to start with finding the common ground when talking to people and slowly, you know, like I say, like can start talking about the message of Jesus. If, I'm a big fan of Jesus. I'm not religious. I mean, in a sense, I don't, you know, believe in the God, the son of God and so on and so on. But the message of Jesus, the, what I believe is, is sublime. And uh, I mean, turn the other cheek. I mean, God, the, the, the idea of that kind of forgiveness. I mean, that's to me, that's understanding that we're part of a historical process. It's not about good guys and bad guys. Like even Hitler, to me, he's not a villain. He's a, he's a part of the historical process. And to me, that's my interpretation of the message of Jesus. I think if you start talking that way, at least we can have a conversation, except in people's, in a lot of minds, people of our religion just get demonized. Oh, you can't, they're the deplorables. You can't talk to them. Yeah, which is, which is a complete misread of the situation in, in almost all cases. And, and, and this is, um, I think, a result of just people not mixing enough. Um, I did a book a long time ago where I I joined one of those mega churches you talked about. I uh, yeah, and, I went to one once. Yeah, yeah, and so I, I I was part of and the and the the, the leader of this church, John Hagee, was is one of the biggest con, con men in Washington. Uh, but the people in the church were good people. You know what I'm saying? And and um, I, my eyes were really opened by a lot of what I heard during that experience because. Just to take an example, uh, evangelicals came an incredibly long way on the issue of gay marriage really quickly, and they did it through the the prism of their own understanding of uh, you know the biblical teaching, right? They like they got there that way, and I don't think most progressives and most most people in academia in America would have thought that was possible. Um, you know, even 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And so it's frustrating to me that um, they, a lot of the people who, who are Trump voters, they're so caricatured. Uh, and I, it, it, people have this idea that they, they are completely inflexible in their thinking. That's not really true. I think what's the, the thing that is most um, deeply felt by those folks is a sense of like betrayal and hurt and um, and dis the feeling of being disrespected is what's uh, what's most profound with those people, and if you and if you, we could find a way to not do that, I think that would be that's where the 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 hope and ch you know for a better future might come. Well, I think one place to start is when you look at the fact that 80% or 82% of evangelicals voted for Trump. Well, that means 20% didn't. And that 20% goes to the same church as the 80%. And they, you know, have tea and strawberry shortcake or whatever the heck they eat at parties. And I have a friend who's a lefty Jewish woman who's married, live in, lives in Tennessee, married to an evangelical guy. And on most political issues, they agree. Mm -hmm. And I went down to visit them and I, I insisted he take me to his church and he did. And I honestly, I, I, I got to be honest, I don't understand how a rational person can listen to the service who's practically promising you a colored TV if you believe in, you know, don't commit these sins. But but the, it almost doesn't matter what the preacher says in some ways. It, the, the experience of being in the church with all the other people that believe as you believe is cathartic. It's transcendental. It makes you, it lifts you up on the wings, whatever the phrase is. And even I felt it, even though I don't believe really any of it. So the, the experience is cathartic and people just don't get dramatic, emotional, cathartic experiences in their lives. And, you know, it doesn't matter what policy you're talking about. If you can't understand that, for the same reason professional wrestling, you know, is so popular. Like, a lot, most people can't figure out why the hell anyone would ever go when they know, at least, in fact, it was my film that broke the news that it's all theater. But <laughs> it's, still, it's still cathartic. Right. Uh, 
Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I, I think, um, you know, from the perspective of conservative voters, a lot of them, uh, are very frustrated and they think, you know, look, a lot of these voters spend a lot of time thinking about their spiritual lives and ethics and morality as a separate, um, something separate and apart from politics. And, um, I, I, I don't see the same thing necessarily from, from voters on the democratic side. Like it's, it's just a different way of thinking about life. And, um, I don't know, it, it it's, it's frustrating that yes, evangelicals think a lot of silly things. They, they, there, there are people who believe in, you know, the coming apocalypse and they believe in, they read books like left behind and they think they're real, but you know, there, there's a lot of deeply felt, uh, stuff in there that's important. The other thing I think is really important in this moment is not to forget how powerful that movement around the Sanders candidacy was before he stepped, you know, he lost and had to support Biden. The, the movement, the motion was really electrifying. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, coming together uh, around very progressive values, threatening the power structure of the Democratic Party. And yeah, there's been this, you know, tactical truce to defeat Trump, uh, maybe a little too much uh, in the sense that I don't think there needed to be uh, as, as much withholding of critique of the Biden forces in order to defeat Trump. On the other hand, I've never won an election in my life, so maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. I really do, I mean that in all sincerity. I, I, it's hard to say they should have done this and should have done that to people that have actually won elections. But that being said, um, and, and I also don't think we should underestimate how much finance sector and much of the Democratic Party uh, really hate the left. The way Thomas Frank says, they don't dislike the left, they hate the left. But they, but I, I think there is a new dynamic here because of how strong that Sanders candidacy was. And like you take uh, Kamala Harris looking forward, you know, to four years from now, if she really pisses off the progressive wing of the party over this next four years, there's going to be a serious progressive challenge to her. I don't know whether it's AOC or, I mean, you know, that's the way it's looking. I mean, God, what a primary that would be. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, and Bernie, Bernie did come very close, and I, I was, I was pretty plugged into the Sanders campaign. I've I've known Bernie for a long time and talked to him uh, a lot in the last ten years. And um, I, th- I think you know one of the things that happened with his campaign that was just unfortunate and a stroke of bad luck is that he happened to run against a candidate who he liked personally. Um, mm-hmm. Bernie, uh, is a, is a, he's a complicated character in a lot of ways. Uh, he's, he's simple on the political side. He believes what he believes and that's, and that's what makes him so appealing to people is they can see the sincerity. Um, but he, he's not a ruthless character in the same way that somebody like Bill Clinton, uh, might be. And even though intellectually, I think he might've understood the necessity of going harder against Joe Biden. He just likes Joe Biden. Joe Biden was nice to him when, when Bernie was, uh, you know, a backbencher independent, uh, once upon a time. And that kind of stuff has a lot of currency with Sanders. And, um, the, there was a major difference, you know, Bernie did not like, uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, and he had a deep and profound personal dislike for her politics and her, her viewpoint on the world. And he was able to summon, um, outrage that was easy to connect with over, um, you know, the things like this she was doing, like, you know, collecting $600,000 in a day for a couple of speeches to Wall Street banks or whatever it was. Uh, he didn't feel that same thing towards towards Joe Biden uh, for obvious reasons, but that, that isn't Biden's thing. Um, and Biden has a similar, slightly kind of background to Bernie. So that that dulled the, the, the edge a little bit. As far as what happens going forward, though, um, you know, I worry about that because they, they were so successful in kind of throttling Sanders at the end there that it took a lot of the air out of the, 
the balloon of the progressive movement, I think here in the States, if, if it's going to be led by somebody like AOC, um, you know, I worry about that because the history of the party is that it always does one of two things with those candidates. It either completely crushes them uh, so that they have no route forward um, and are never taken seriously again, like Dennis Kucinich, uh, or they bring them into the fold and kind of buy them off with influence and a voice like Howard Dean. Um, and I, I worry that that's going to be what's going to happen with AOC is they're going to make her the public face uh, of the party and have her talk about certain issues that they don't really care about. Um, and with that, they're going to, they're going to make sure that she doesn't spend all the next four years talking about all the giveaways that they're going to give to, to wall street and to the pharmaceutical industry. And, um, so that would be an early thing to look out for, for if, uh, if I were being paying attention. Well, I'm sure you will be paying attention. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I haven't seen it so far from her. Uh, I, I've been, what's the word, pleasantly, I'm not sure surprised or it's the right word, but so far she seems to stick to her guns. And uh, there's no doubt what you say is the cautionary side of it, and they will try that. But uh, I mean, they're they're they're, the they're going to offer to you. You can be the next Nancy Pelosi. That's what they're going. That's what they're going to hold out. For oh her. no way! Not oh god, she's going to have to make a lot of capitulations before that ever happens. Well, it's just something to keep in mind. I think that's that that's a possible plot line. So yeah. All right. Well, just finally, and I hope we get to do this again soon. Mm-hmm. This, is, this, this is great. Yeah. Uh, but but just qu- quickly, uh, a few litmus tests about what direction this is going in terms of transition team appointments, uh, when he starts talking about cabinet appointments, uh, what are you going to be looking for that will tell you, will tell the tale? Uh, well, I'm, I'm very concerned about whether they're going to be bringing back a lot of the kind of national security uh, creeps from the Bush and Obama administrations. Uh, like if, if, if we start seeing names like Michael Hayden and John Brennan and James Clapper, uh, back in the Biden administration, that to me is a sign that we're in very serious trouble because, uh, it's, it's not just the foreign policy issues. It's not just the kind of continuation of the Dick Cheney's kind of state within a state war on terrorism stuff. It's the new stuff that I really worry about. It's the it's the kind of growing union of uh, politics with Silicon Valley and content moderation. Uh, a lot of these folks were very influential in uh, you know behind the scenes through groups like the Atlantic Council in bringing about this new form of media distribution that's now so heavily regulated. Um, and uh, I think their vision of the future is is you know d- is dystopian, and I think they uh, that's that's where I'm most worried is are we going to see those people back in government, and what are they going to do on issues like media and you know fake news and um, and that sort of thing, and 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 continued growth of financialization where the oh, finance sector becomes even more powerful, which which Roosevelt described as fascism. Uh, this is a great quote from Roosevelt where he says that when one section of capitalists uh, are able to take control essentially of the state, I described it in this article I wrote as what you were just talking about, this kind of dystopia and the financialization, which I know you've written about, that's the sort of systemic cancer the, the malignant tumor was Trump and the forces behind him. And that tumor, in my mind, had to be removed because otherwise, you know, the, the patient's dead. But the fight against the systemic cancer, uh, is by, you know, by no means getting rid of Trump does, gets rid of the cancer. Yeah. And, and uh, not, to, not to go on about this, but the, the bailout in, uh, that came after the pandemic started, um, the argument that Wall Street made at that time 
was essentially the Fed has an obligation not just to stabilize markets, but basically to prop them up, right? Like uh, this was a different argument that they made in 2008 when they said, okay, well, we have to make these companies whole because um, otherwise there will be permanent lasting damage, you know, collateral damage to the economy. And uh, we'll just fix it to just this one, one time and we'll go back to a free market system. They actually overtly made the argument this time that the Fed needs to make sure that prices stay at a, uh, you know, in, in the various capital markets, that they stay at a, at, a, at a reasonable level so that there's some predictability to it. Which is essentially even higher like, than re- even higher than reasonable. Yeah, higher than reasonable. So it, in it, terms it, of the stock market, it's crazy. You got a pandemic and a depression, and the market's going through the roof. Right. What like what, what exactly are we? What's the justification for that? Apart from we have to make sure that people who who are invested in, you know, uh, you know, in not in the stock market because they did they didn't do it directly there, but um, you know, the money market funds market, for instance, right? Like. Why do we have to make sure that that stays at a at a particularly high rate? I mean, the, the, and so you know, twenty five years after we had ended welfare as we know it under the Clinton administration, we've created this other thing, which essentially is like permanent Fed backstopping of the financial markets, uh, and they they did it through Trump, um, but it's not associated with Trump. It's, it's a thing that kind of happened that the public doesn't, doesn't associate with him. Uh, and if that continues, I mean, that's, that's a pretty extraordinary development um, to, to commit so much of our resources to that. And so that's another thing to keep an eye on, you know, I, that. Yeah. And then act, act two, I, I don't know when act two comes, but, but as soon as the economy really starts to come back, Act two will be, oh, the debt's too big. After saying we don't care how oh, much yeah. money they create, then the austerity hawks are going to come back. And, and, and then, then it's going to be back to, well, the people are going to have to pay because the debt's so high. It, absolutely. It, it, as they were disregarding the entire concept of debt during this period, right? Like, the, you know, they, they, they literally said it doesn't matter at all, right? We, we, we can... We can uh, um, I forget what the, the Fed chair's comment was, how he phrased it exactly, but essentially it's like, we're not going to run out of ammunition, right? So there was, there, was no, there was no floor or no ceiling to how much debt they were willing to incur to, to do this. Um, and yet, you know, uh, but they will, they will absolutely make that argument once the economy starts to come back and everybody knows what's going to happen. You're right. It's going to be some version of, Greece or Italy, you know what I'm saying? It's it's going to be right. that. that. going to talk that way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When it comes to when it comes to any legislation that's actually going to help people, right? Uh, there's a there's a really interesting number I saw. I think it was a twenty from 2018 Brookings Institute. They did a study of how much wealth is in private hands, asset after liabilities. Ninety eight trillion dollars. In a private American hands. Wow. Yeah. That's... I mean, that's that's insane. And, you know, the ability to tax some of that and pay for this stuff is is rather easy if you had, you know, the, the will, the political will. But they're going to claim there's not enough money. Right. And, and, and this debt's so horrible. I mean, they could pay off the debt in five winks if they would just tax some of that $98 trillion. But. Right, but then the the atlases will go on strike, you know, and uh, like like in the book, and um, you know that they they won't they won't permit that kind of politics. So that it, that's all stuff for, worth watching out for. This is in the, the post Trump universe. I think we're going to see, you know, more discussion of that because the you know the, those changes were pretty profound when they when they started to happen uh, after after the pandemic, and we'll we'll see what happens going forward. Anyway, I'm I'm a little hopeful, even though there's a lot of reasons not to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the main thing is going to be, and I think people will get this pretty soon. At least the more activist types, uh, and is that you know the Biden presidency is just the beginning of another battle, and and people got to get organized. It's really simple. People got to get organized because this gonna this climate. It, there's no time 
for kind of some evolutionary working out of this stuff. Mm. Uh, the climate crisis has just put a different window on time. And, you know, what do we have? Uh, I don't even know what, what time we have. I just know we don't have time. Right. It may be less than a decade. I mean, some of the predictions are really dire. Right, right. And, uh, and, and I think the big battle is going to be against greenwashing. It's, I, I, I think they are going to do some stuff. It's just, is it going to be bullshit? Uh, because I think the urgency is, is, is being understood even in the circles of the elites, but they can't help themselves. They just can't help themselves. They got to figure out a way to make money out of whatever gets done. And, and the most effective policy isn't going to make them quick money. Right. And that, that's the big battle and we better get organized for it or or we're kind of doomed as uh, what's Chomsky's line, uh, organized human life on this planet. Absolutely. Well, we'll 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 see what happens. Uh, you know, it, it's they've only just uh, gotten into office, so we'll we'll see we'll see what takes place. But uh, yeah, very interesting stuff. Yeah. Thanks very much, Matt. And uh, let's do it again soon. Absolutely. Take care now. Mm-hmm.